0: Hello and welcome to Luann's Land Podcast. Now here's your host, award-winning country music artist Luann Hunt. It was truly a sad day when Jay Leno left The Tonight Show in 2014. But Americans will never forget the impact he made on television and beyond. According to Dave Berg, who co-produced the show during The Leno Years, His boss was a stand-up guy with an extreme dedication to his calling as a late-night talk show host. To give the public a bit of insight into what went on behind the scenes at the program, Dave has written a fascinating book titled Behind the Curtain, an insider's view of Jay Leno's Tonight Show. It's full of wonderful stories about everything from the show's inner workings to how Jay prepared for his monologues and the procedures for booking celebrity guests. Dave is here today to talk about his book and share a few tales about his time working for the highest rated nighttime program for nearly two decades. Good afternoon, Dave. How are you on this beautiful Southern California day?
1: Very well. Thank you.
0: Great to hear. I am so, so pleased to have you here I just love your book that you've written about your behind the scenes experiences working on the Jay Leno show. And I know my audience is going to be just riveted to your stories and all the things that you have to say about your time there, which was like 20 years, right? That's right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you wound up working for Jay Leno?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of an odd story. Basically, I got the job because something happened to me. And what happened is I got fired. (laughs) I had been working at NBC News, uh, Network News in Burbank for about 10 years and ended up being the bureau chief for their new cable network at the time, CNBC. And we had creative differences and they fired me. And I was distraught. I didn't know what I should do next. And One day, um, I was still at the office working for a couple more weeks. I I called my wife at home, and I I was telling her, you know, I didn't know what to do next. I wasn't sure if I should stay in the same business. And I just happened to mention in passing that uh, we had a new neighbor down the hall uh, where I worked, and that was The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Their staff had just moved in. Uh, They were about three months out from going on the air. And I said, that's a little strange, huh? And she said, "Uh, great, what are you going to do when we get off the phone? I said, well, I'm going to get back on the phone and I'm going to start looking for work. And she said, right, you're going to start looking for work by going down and going into the Tonight Show office. And I said, no, you don't understand, honey, the Tonight Show is royalty because I had been there when Johnny Carson walked down the corridors. I didn't work for Johnny but when he walked by, I didn't know if I should bow down. He was like a, he was like royalty, and I was a little intimidated. I had never worked in entertainment. I had always worked in the news business. I didn't even take what she said seriously, except she just kept calling me every hour. Did you did you go down? Uh, what what's Jay Leno like? And I said I, I haven't. And finally, at the end of the day, she said, Okay, have you been down to? St- to the Jay Leno show and I said, well, no no, I haven't, but I promise first thing tomorrow. She said, well, um, did, did you wanna come home for dinner tonight or not? You tell me. And at that point I thought, okay, what's more intimidating, going down to the Tonight Show and applying for a job or going home to my wife and telling her that I didn't apply for the job? So I went down and I went into the Tonight Show office. And when I got there, it was about 10 minutes to five and the receptionist, who seemed to be the only one in the office, said, congratulations to you. And I said, what, what, I got a job? She said, no, um, you're the last applicant. Uh, the applications close out at 5 o'clock today. And as I started leaving the office, the executive producer of the show start, started like running after me. And she said, wait a minute, Wait. wait, wait where are you going? And I, I said, well, I'm going home. She said, I really need you to come in and talk to me right now because I am looking for someone that has your abilities. I need someone that has a background in news. And and two days later, I get a call and I'm shaking hands with Jay Leno.
0: Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) I saw a quote on Facebook not long ago, and it just totally fits your situation. It says, sometimes when we feel we've been rejected, it's just life redirecting us.
1: Well, that's about as appropriate a, a quote as, as I can think of for what happened to me.
0: Yeah, and just the fact that your wife was just pushing you and pushing you, and, and that was probably a little out of character for her, I imagine, too, right?
1: She was uh, unusually persistent on this one.
0: It's interesting the way things work out the way they're supposed to. And a lot of times, I know some of the greatest things that have happened to me in my life just fell into my lap. I didn't really even try that hard to go after them. Really? Yeah, so it sounds like with you the same thing. It was like you were almost reluctant to do it, but it was so meant to be that the door just opened anyway.
1: Yeah, as I always say, it's the easiest job I ever got. Um, I mean, I tried much harder to get a job at that first 1,000-watt radio station in Chicago, and they rejected me. Than this one. However, it was the hardest job I ever had.
0: So what did you do there exactly?
1: That's always a good question because people say, okay, so you were a producer. What does that mean? It's it's a very nebulous term. And it's confusing to people and for good reason because it depends on, it really depends on the situation. You sometimes see people getting producer credits on films and that's because they're, uh, you know, they happen to be somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend. So it's a nebulous term, but at the Tonight Show or shows like that, it's pretty specific. You're basically involved with the guests on the show, booking them and producing their segments or coming up with questions and entertaining things to do with them. So Jay pretty much handled the monologue and the comedy and and the, the producer handled the guests. So did you have
0: specific areas of guests that you were supposed to look for? Like, for instance, did they tell you, we want you to look for political guests specifically or music guests or whatever the case may be?
1: Well, I actually got hired because of my background as a journalist. But the person who hired me to do that, she she herself got fired four months later. So here I am, the guy that was—I I really had no background in the entertainment world at all. Now I have to sort of justify to the new powers that be at the show what I'm doing there because I, I wasn't really brought in um, because of my great contacts in the entertainment world. But I have great contacts in the political world, the news world, sports, all of that stuff. Um, so basically. Um, Uh, my specialty became bringing in people that normally at that time weren't on late night shows, but I created that specialty because I didn't have good contacts in the entertainment world.
0: A lot of times something like that will happen and it kind of changes the dynamic of something that you're doing. You know what I'm saying? So Uh, I do It makes it more, all of a sudden there's another layer of of interest to it.
1: Well, when I, Got hired. Um, the you know the the pattern, the the, the show that everyone um, that that we were pretty much patterning ourselves after was Johnny Carson's show, and he had maybe over a period of thirty years, maybe ten political guests. It was it was about entertainment,
0: right? So now all of a sudden, Jay Leno is expanding into different kinds of guests, and of course. It does. It makes it more interesting when when you can bring in people that aren't just in one segment of the industry. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't work with a lot of entertainment people. I did, and I and I worked with a lot of them, and and so many of them remain my friends to this day. It's just that wasn't my strength when I first got involved.
0: Well, I, I just think it's great that they were willing to um, sort of just – let you take the reins and see what you were going to do, right? They must have had a lot of faith and trust in you Im- immediately.
1: Well, they didn't at first. They, they, they pretty much came to me and said, okay, tell us why we should keep you here, because right now we're not seeing a reason to keep you here. I really felt like a square peg in a round hole for about two to three years. But uh, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it was, uh, it was, it was a little difficult in the, in the early years.
0: Sometimes it's like that when you start out in a new venture and then it turns out to be the best thing that ever happened, right? (laughs) Yeah. So you have to go through some rough waters, you know, at first. It's kind of like paying your dues.
1: Right. That's right.
0: So you talk in the book about what it was like working for Jay. And I thought maybe Mm -hmm. you could give our audience a little taste of some of the things that went on between you and him and and when he was backstage and all of that.
1: Sure. Well, here's the thing about Jay. He, in the 20 years that I worked for him, he never once raised his voice. He, I, and I'm not saying he was easy to work with. Uh, he had his moments, but he was, um, always a, a good guy underneath it all. And, um, probably the best boss I ever had but definitely the best boss I ever had but he was also by far the most quirky guy I ever worked for I mean he did all these things that I've never seen anybody I, I don't he's the most he's the quirkiest guy by far like he would come in to work every day I think everybody knows this he, he would come in wearing you know Levi's right and a, and a jeans shirt every day they would wear the same thing He would eat the same lunch every day. He'd maybe change it up after. He'd eat turkey for a year for lunch. And then the next year he might eat chicken. But he ate the same thing and he would go home and he would eat lasagna every single night. He was a a kind of a, a creature of habit in other ways too. For instance, he would go through the same ritual backstage before he went on stage The uh, props guy, Joey Drago, would give him a a, a cup of uh, cold water, which he would drink right when the band started playing on the first note. He would drink that cup of cold water, and he would touch certain areas uh, backstage uh, before he went out. He never invested in any stocks, didn't do any of that. He went to bed at three o'clock, 2 to 3 o'clock every night and got up at 6 or 7 a.m. And why did he do all of these things? He did them because he did not want to be distracted from working on the monologue. He figured that if he had to spend 15 seconds deciding what he had to wear to work, that was a waste of time. Or if he had to decide what he wanted for lunch, take 30 seconds to do that, that would have been a waste of time distracting him from the monologue.
0: (laughs) He made it seem so so easy, and you wouldn't imagine that he would have put that much time into those monologues.
1: Yeah. He went through 1,500 monologue jokes a day. Now, he wrote some of them himself, but uh, he had a a lot of writers providing them. I provided some of them from time to time, but he would go through 1,500 jokes every day and edit them down to about 24, 25 jokes for the night's monologue. He did it 24-7.
0: That's dedication. (laughs) Yeah. Did you guys get to uh, be the guinea pigs for some of the jokes?
1: (laughs) Well, um, here's the thing. If you were having a busy day, you didn't want to go past his office because he would see you. He would say, oh, hey, hey, Dave, can you come in the office? I want to run a couple of jokes past you because I was sort of a show conservative, so he would always call me in to go over jokes that might have been a little uh, edgy or, or kind of pushed the limits, and he would say, okay, is this gonna work in Omaha? So you would wanna stay away from his office because he was constantly testing jokes.
0: Wow, that's amazing, you know, that he, yeah. he just had, well, and that he had so many that he was looking at every day. Yes. I imagine it's an incredible skill to be able to figure out which jokes are going to be the best ones and get the best laughs.
1: Well, I don't need to tell you that when you, for instance, do anything creative, like select a song to sing or write a song and produce it, no one ever really knows if it's going to work. And that's the same for jokes. You really don't know. And that's why he would just, he would constantly be testing jokes. And that's why he would go out and do stand up on the road. He would even while he was doing the Tonight Show, he'd be he'd make about 100 150 appearances a, a year at different uh comedy venues.
0: So were there any times that he delivered his monologue on the show and then afterwards he was like, "Dang, you know, I just stunk up the joint or whatever."
1: um yes and no he he wouldn't he he never taped the entire monologue over again however he relied very heavily on the audience's reaction people that were in the audience i don't think they realized uh, jay always considered the audience to be just as important a part of the show as the guests on the show or 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 jay himself because they were his feedback to his joke. So if a joke got no reaction, he, of course, would try to save it. And often he did save it. Uh, Johnny Carson was legendary for saving bad jokes. But if a joke just didn't work and it got no reaction, it would be taken out of the show.
0: <laughs> Thank God for editing, right?
1: <laughs> right. Now, Johnny did it a little differently. What, what went into the show stayed on the show. That's how he did it, but we were a little more wax about that because it was a little more competitive. There were other late night shows; you couldn't afford to have a, a bad joke here and there. They all had to be good.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'm sure he was a little nervous all the time because you know, trying to fill Johnny's shoes. I mean, that's a tall order.
1: Right, and the uh, the critics really didn't like him uh, at first. Def- definitely didn't like them because they felt like he wasn't in the same league as Johnny Carson. So he had to deal with that too. Again, when I used to work at NBC News and he would be walking down the corridors, uh, sometimes I felt, like I said earlier, it really felt like royalty walking by. Even though he was not an arrogant man at all, he kept to himself. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't unkind. But he was, uh, he was Johnny Carson.
0: Yeah he just had a wonderful way too with the guest. and but you know I will say cuz I was always a fan of Carson growing up and yeah uh, but when Jay took over I warmed up to him immediately it just you know I didn't have that sense of not liking what he was doing or feeling like he wasn't as good as Johnny I just I just thought he kind of brought his own special kind of magic to the program and I mean that was my feeling and I'm sure a lot of people warmed up to him obviously, because he was on the air for 20 years, right?
1: Well, and that's why we became the ratings leader and stayed the ratings leader for, you know, 15 to, to 20 years. I mean, if you just read the critics, you wouldn't know that he was far and away the number one late night show virtually, except for the first two years he was on the air. All the rest of the time, he was by far number one rated show.
0: You did a great job and you you know, it's funny because I'm a journalist and I always say that my stories are only as good as the quotes that I get. And I imagine in live television when you're having guests on, it's kind of similar because if you have a guest that is not really giving you what you want, it could really be a boring type of thing, you know? Did you find that to be true?
1: Yes, you as a producer lived and died by what your guests did. And sometimes I would, you know, put my reputation on the line and I would say, you need to book this person. This person is going to bring something to the show. And then they come out there and they're a dud. And it's, it's like, hey, <laughs> I staked my reputation on you and you didn't, you didn't even bother to try to do a good job. I would sometimes feel that that way so yes you're kind you're really at the mercy once you book that guest no matter how much you try to prepare them or no matter what you do to make the segment better once that guest is out there on the show it's their show
0: it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around anybody going on that show and not really wanting to put it all out there so to speak (laughs) but I, I suppose that happened right
1: well it was This was a constant source of frustration for Jay in in particular and and all of us. He came from the generation, of course, that um, when you went on Johnny's show, you better be funny because if you weren't, you wouldn't come back. You were not booked. And and it happened to him after he had made a few appearances. Somebody didn't like his uh, appearance and he was not on Johnny for the next three or four years. So he himself had experienced um, what happens to you if you didn't perform on the Johnny Carson show. So he expected everybody to operate the same way, potential guests to operate the same way he did. You go on the show, you're thoroughly prepared, you go out there to entertain. But um, often many of the uh, actors, particularly the younger ones, they didn't really respect the process. And they sort of had this feeling that they were they, their presence was intrinsically interesting, and it wasn't.
0: Yeah, I could see that. You know, the ego takes over, and well, I'm here, yeah. so everybody should just be entertained <laughs> yeah. because I showed up. Yeah. <laughs> so, I know you share some of those stories in the book. Can you tell our audience maybe one of your favorites?
1: Let me let me put it this way: um, I, r- rather than just sort of trash somebody individually, which I, which I'd prefer not to do. I would just say, as a group, the one group of people, if you look at, uh, we we had actors on the show, we had comedians on the show, we had singers on the show, athletes, newsmakers, who would you think would have been the the group that would handle that process the best? Actors, right? Because that's what they do. do But they were the worst. And I think it's because... Uh, You know, anybody that makes a living by reading scripts and playing other people um, isn't often, not always, but sometimes isn't that good when it's time to be spontaneous and come up with your own material.
0: I think a lot of those actors, they definitely hide behind those characters and their persona that they have out there.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm not criticizing. It's just an it's just an observation that many of many of them really don't have. I mean, they and they would be the first ones to often tell me, you know, honestly, I don't have a life. I uh, I, I you know I go into the studio to do my part, and I go home, and I I just don't have a life. And it's like, okay, don't be telling me that now.
0: <laughs> now on the other side of the coin, what is a, a really great guest that you remember?
1: I would have to say, if you were going to ask me who my favorite guest um, in all the years that I I was on The Tonight Show, it was was, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. And I don't know if that name means a lot to people of today, but in his time, he essentially represented American royalty. I mean, he was the son of the assassinated President John Kennedy, very handsome guy, very charming man. And he, I tried to book him. It took me six years to get him to come on the show. And the reason he, he turned me down uh, all that time is because he felt that he wasn't good enough. So on top of it all, he's the most handsome guy in the world. Um, he's the most charming guy in the world. And now he's the most humble guy in the world. But it it took me six years to convince him that, um, you know, that he would would be, uh, that people would take an interest in hearing him on The Tonight Show. And when he finally did come on, he turned out to be one of the most charming and entertaining guests that, that we ever had. And what's interesting, the night he, he only made one appearance and the night he appeared was the, was the night that Jerry Seinfeld was, was on the show promoting his very, the very last episode of Seinfeld. And when he found out that the, the, the date that we had booked him was when Seinfeld was on, he threatened to uh, uh, not do the show. The night before he called and said, I I, I can't, I don't think I can do this. And I, I said... What, what, what do you mean? I thought that he was sort of acting like he didn't want to go on and, and have a bigger name on than him. You know? But what he said was I, who's going to want to hear what I have to say after they've seen Jerry Seinfeld, why would they want to see me? It's an odd reaction. So what, what he did and I, I talked to him, you, you got to believe me, trust me, trust me, people are going to want to see you. He agreed to do the show based on, 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 um, an agreement we made that all the stories he did with Jay would be about Jerry Seinfeld because he didn't think people would have enough interest in him. So he told these wonderful stories. There there was actually a Seinfeld episode about John F. Kennedy Jr. So he told some stories about the reactions that he got from people when, when he was a subject of Seinfeld. And do you know who one of them, one of the people at the show who was most fascinated in what he had to say was Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs)
0: That's a great story, Dave. Yeah. Great. Well, wow. What, you know, what memories, what a legacy for you to have had that experience in your life. At the end of the day, when it all came to an end, what was the thing that you felt like you would really take with you, the takeaway from the whole experience in your life?
1: Well, I considered it a huge blessing. I mean, just... From an economic point of view, I, I really wasn't, you know, I wasn't a guy that uh, was, was making a lot of money, you know, and here, and and here I, I thought I, you know, I had been fired by NBC news and I didn't know what was going to happen. And here I got this job. It lasted 20 years. It could have lasted longer, except I left early to, to, to write a book about it. But uh, it was a blessing that, 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 that Jay Leno gives me a break. Um, and it you know it, it paid pretty well, if you know what I mean. And so that in itself was a blessing. The other, the other cool thing about it is that I, I get to meet the the most interesting, fascinating, influential people in the world, and I, I get to see how they are.
0: Well, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today and hear your fascinating stories. And it's been cool to get a little behind-the-scenes look at The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Before we go, can you tell our audience where they can get a copy of your book, Behind the Curtain?
1: I think Amazon.com is the best best place to go. Okay. Or you can come and see me speak somewhere and I'll sell you one. <laughs> but Amazon.com.
0: Thanks again for being on the show. We will hopefully catch up again in the future. Listen to Luann's Land Podcast on Tuesdays from noon to 1230 p.m. Pacific at Luann'sLandPodcast.com or Luann'sLandPodcast.Buzzsprout.com. Follow the show on Facebook at Luann's Land Podcast and on Twitter at Luann's Land. All episodes will be archived for free on-demand streaming.